Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hi, everyone, and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on March 18th, 2020, and I'm Anna Garcia. First of all, we want to acknowledge the difficult time that we are all going through right now because of the coronavirus pandemic. And we want to make sure that you all are safe. It's a very scary time right now. And and we here at True Crime Daily are going to continue delivering this podcast every week because Everyone needs a distraction from what is going on, and so do we. And we have taken enormous precautions. I'm sitting in the studio by myself. Our engineer, Moses, is in a room behind a glass window. We have so much of our team working remotely. Our guest this week is also working remotely. So we are doing this with as much consideration for the circumstances as possible, but we want to remain connected to you right now, especially at such a scary time. Our special guest today is true crime host from Oxygen, that great true crime channel. Uh, Lonnie Coombs is a former Los Angeles County criminal prosecutor. She's on the phone with us today. Lonnie, how are you? I'm doing good, Anna. So glad to be here with you. It's a crazy time. You know, it really is. And um, luckily, so much can be done nowadays remotely, as you said, that I can call in from home. Um, I'm on my fourth day of self-isolation, essentially, as much as I can do, um, you know, to try and avoid going out. I'm doing that, but I'm a lucky person who can do that. You know, a lot of my work I can do remotely. And I appreciate all the people who are out there on the front lines, whether it be, you know, the medical people, um, the people who are making sure that the food supplies are still out there. You know, they're out there every day. And um, I appreciate them and have so much gratitude for them. And, you know, we're we're all getting used to a new normal. 
um, and making those adjustments. And it's kind of a difficult time, but looking for the the positive things that we can be grateful for, I think keeps you going. And thank heavens today's a sunny day. I think that sunshine makes a huge difference for everybody when we can, you know, see the sunshine outside. I know. And in a weird way, I like to think that it's a bit of a disinfectant, you know, <laughs> when you leave yeah. things out in the sun to cook for a while. So uh, yeah. it's that is just my wacky theory from my head. But I think it just does cleanse everything and make everyone feel just a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I agree. Now, Lonnie is a regular guest here on True Crime Daily. Um, we know you've been super busy. We know you've got some new episodes coming out of your show that's called The DNA of Murder with Paul Holes. That's going to return on Saturday, March 21st at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Oxygen. What should we be looking forward to seeing? So that's actually this Saturday if anybody's looking for something to watch. Um for those of you who are able to see the first part of this season of DNA of Murder with Paul Holes, we had about five episodes in the fall time, and now the show is back with four more episodes um, starting this Saturday night. It'll be every Saturday night, and it starts out these first two weeks. Um, we're looking into two different cases, two women who live outside of Atlanta were murdered in their homes, and as we look at each case individually, we're going through it, and we start to see similarities they become so strong that we start to think maybe these two cases are connected. So it's very interesting to watch it unfold as we go through our investigation in real time uh, between these two murder cases just outside of Atlanta. So very fascinating, fascinating cases. Oh, great. Well, congratulations on the second series, and we look forward to it. Thank you. So these are our cases this week. Cops are investigating these cryptic letters about a missing five-year-old New Jersey girl, Dulce Alaves, who disappeared five months ago. But first, we go to a high-profile case out of Spokane, Washington, where the trial of a man who's accused of killing his wife of more than 30 years by poisoning her ice cream has been delayed because of the coronavirus. The corona pandemic is delaying a murder trial in Cheney, Washington. That is the specific area where this all happened. Now, ordinarily, the courtroom would be packed for this high-profile murder, but instead it is empty. This is the case of a husband accused of killing his wife by poisoning her ice cream with painkillers. The case got as far as one day of jury selection, and then they had to postpone the murder trial until August. So we're talking about David Pettis here. He's accused of killing his wife of more than 30 years. And investigators say that the motive, Lonnie, was that he was in love with another woman. Isn't isn't it always the same? <laughs> oh, boy. How many times have we heard this one before? I know, right? <laughs> just know, get divorced. I always say, just get divorced. Oh, my gosh. I so agree with you. Why must you kill the person? Isn't it just easier to divorce? Yeah. Yeah. Unless you need some money from that, uh, you know, life insurance policy, perhaps to start your new life. I don't know. There we go. Some foreshadowing there by Lonnie. (laughs) So according to court records, Peggy Pettis, who was 64, died as a result of a lethal dose of painkillers in June of 2018. Her husband, who was 58 at the time, told the police that he often mixed a concoction of hydrocodone, also known as Oxycontin, with alcohol and ice cream to help his wife who had trouble swallowing the pills. He said that he gave her three pills, ground them up, put them in the ice cream, and then topped it off with a little alcohol. 
Now, according to court documents, Pettis says that he fell asleep on the couch while his wife was still awake. He woke up about 10.30 p.m. and he found her on the floor, face down somewhere between the bedroom and the bathroom. He called 911 and reported that his wife was blue and that she was not responding and that she wasn't breathing either. He said he performed CPR on her and when paramedics arrive, they pronounce Peggy dead at the scene. Now, the husband claimed that Peggy suffered with debilitating pain for years because of a leg injury, and that's why she took the painkillers. So, Lonnie, here's what gets interesting. While the cops are in the house and they're, you know, trying to figure everything out, I mean, is it always your belief that cops always have to think suspiciously, right? They always have to think murder until proven otherwise or homicide until proven otherwise. Sure. You know, anytime they have a a dead body, they're looking at it to see, is it suicide? Is it natural causes? Is it accident or is it homicide? And they have to look at all of those options. So they're looking for evidence of any of those potential um, reasons. So while the police are in the house, Pettis, the husband, shows the officers this box that contained several types of prescription drugs that he said belonged to his wife. But here's what's really bizarre. The hydrocodone was apparently prescribed to David, to the husband, for his shoulder injury. And another drug that was in the box apparently came from a third party who knows who that belonged to. And this is the really interesting part. Detectives say none of the prescription medications belonged to Peggy and her name was not on the pill bottles. Is that red flag number one? It is, although honestly, we, you know, I think we all probably know people who use other people's medications, right? So yep. it's not, okay. not a good thing to do, not a smart thing to do. You're not supposed to do it, but I wouldn't say that's uncommon. Okay, all right. So now the case is progressing. The autopsy revealed that Peggy had several drugs in her system, including 10 times the amount of hydrocodone that was considered to be therapeutic. What she had was a lethal dose. And get this, there was no alcohol in her system, according to the toxicology report. Do you find that suspicious? Yeah, this, you know, the devil's in the details. It was so nice of him, David, to lay out this little recipe that he gave his wife, you know, so lovingly every night of ice cream with the painkillers in it with a little bit of alcohol. But when their toxicology report comes back, that's not true. There's no alcohol. There's a lot more hydrocodone that's supposed to be in there. So now all of a sudden the things he's saying just aren't true. So detectives decide to dig a little deeper and they review Peggy's medical records and they uncover that the last few years of her life, she had only been prescribed a total of 13 hydrocodone pills. And none of those prescriptions were either current or recent. And there were no notes in her medical records at all referring to any problem swallowing pills. Do you find that a little odd? Yes. Yes. (laughs) So then the cops find out that Peggy has a brand new insurance policy and the ink on the signature line is barely dry. It seems that a $150,000 life insurance policy on Peggy's life was approved, get this, three days before she died. And who is the sole beneficiary? Her husband, David. You know, the man who is the mixer of the cocktails. 
So detectives found that it was suspicious that Peggy was able to pass the physical for the life insurance policy, despite the fact that her husband claimed she had all sorts of medical problems. They were so severe that she was required to take this highly addictive and dangerous medicine. So at this point in the case, investigators are already suspecting foul play. And it's the next thing that David did that really had heads turning and, I would say, spinning. Okay, Lonnie, detectives say that the husband was allegedly very aggressive about trying to collect on her life insurance policy. So investigators say that David Pettis called the medical examiner's office 10 times because he wanted to speed up his wife's toxicology report so he could collect on the insurance policy. Do you feel a sense of desperation here or or what? (laughs) What do you think is going on at this point? Well, he's not playing it cool by any means here. I mean, he only waited three days after he got the insurance policy, if he killed her, to kill her. And then he's highlighting that by, you know, going after people and saying, you know, hurry up, hurry up. I need that money. I need the money that I just signed on up for three days ago. I need it right now. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all compiling and pointing the finger at him. It is. I mean, and that and this is really methodical the way the authorities have have really told this story and put the evidence out there. So he ends up telling a, a local television station that the reason he was trying to collect the money is because he needed to pay for the funeral. OK, that's very possible. But if that were so, you would think that in the 10 times that he called the uh, medical examiner's office that he may have mentioned that. It would have been kind of helpful. Um, Now, while all of this is going on, relatives start coming forward with their suspicions. Peggy's sister, who happens to live next door to them, contacts the sheriff's office, and she says that she believes that Peggy's death is suspicious. Now, you as a prosecutor, when a family member comes forward, do you find that in itself to be suspicious, or do you think it's like every family member, you know, can never deal with the fact that it's possible that it was an accidental death? No, I, I think you can. You definitely want to listen to what the family members have to say, because a lot of times they're saying, oh, he was just the best guy ever. Um, you know, he would never have done anything to hurt her. He loved her so much. I mean, you never know, because obviously there's always secret lives behind behind closed doors. But when family members come up and say, look, we're suspicious because and they give you some reasons, you definitely want to listen, because who else knows better inside those closed doors besides maybe those family members? Exactly. So Peggy's sister says that the Pettises were having some serious financial problems. And apparently that was because David was spending too much of the money. And she also said that her sister Peggy only took hydrocodone occasionally to deal with back pain. And that is very interesting itself. But I think the blockbuster here is that the sister told the police that her brother-in-law, David, was having an affair, that he had reconnected with an old high school girlfriend while he was in New York for a funeral, and that he actually had posted a photo on Facebook with this woman, and the caption read, feeling in love. Now, he... The sister is not the only family member to come forward because it turns out that David's own son also came forward to detectives and he said that he was worried 
his father may have killed Peggy. The son said that Peggy didn't take medication or drink in the way that the father was describing. The son also said that the father had told him that he had shared a bed with his old high school girlfriend during this trip to New York, which I don't know if that's the kind of thing I would share with my son, even if he's grown. It seems like a bit Mm -hmm. much. Um, And this was also interesting, getting back to the finances, that the father was already collecting money from Peggy's retirement account. So are wow. we are we starting to see a picture here? Yes, he was a very busy bee in collecting all this money as fast as he could. Well, friends and family told the police that Peggy, they also confirmed that she really didn't drink much. And they said that she didn't like to take hydrocodone because the drug would make her itch which is very interesting. Friends and family also said that David had gone around telling them that the wife, Peggy, had been suffering from dementia. And that was kind of confusing for the people hearing this because they didn't notice any signs of dementia. So does this seem like someone who's setting up a story potentially, you know, to to make the crime look that much more believable as an accident? Yeah, absolutely. You know, he's trying to sort of point the finger back at Peggy and say there were things going on there, as opposed to, you know, pointing it away from himself. He's trying to mislead and misdirect the attention. And if he claims that his wife has dementia, then it's very possible she could have taken more pills than she should have, although he's the one who said he made the concoction. Yeah, yeah, he kind of messed up there. Yeah, But, you, you know, messed, she could have taken the wrong amount or maybe after he, he went to sleep, she got up and took some more herself. She's the reason why they're having financial difficulties or whatever it is. It's all because she's having this dementia. Well, a lot of this information really goes back to the life insurance policy because during the physical examination for the life insurance policy, the doctor wrote that Peggy was not suffering from any memory issues, even though David was still telling people she had dementia, which I think is very telling. Oh, yeah, because, you know, the doctor has to look at that, right? When they're filling out the life insurance policy, they do, a, a, you know, an exam and would be looking at those things. And this was only three days before. Right. So it was in the same time frame. Right. Exactly. It's not like it was a year or two later where someone could have really had, you know, some real changes in 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 their mental health. Mm-hmm. Well, The detectives decide they're going to talk to David about this alleged affair. And this is his response, according to the court records. He claimed that because Peggy had trouble getting around and was in so much pain that she told him to pursue a relationship with his old high school girlfriend just in case anything ever happened to her. Do you believe that? No. (laughs) That sounds crazy. As a woman, that sounds crazy to me. I cannot amend I cannot imagine as a wife that I would turn to my husband and say, oh, yeah, go ahead. Fool around on me. I worry for you. Have a good time. (laughs) Exactly. With your old girlfriend who you've been texting with. And and apparently he also said that she was in communication, too, with some of his high school girlfriends through words with friends. It's like, oh, well, she's just like being so friendly to all of these, you know, old girlfriends of his. And go ahead. If anything happens to me. You know, and then something happens to him, right? Or happens to her. If anything happens to me, you just go right ahead and, and be with this person. Really, he's ma- he's making Peggy out to be a saint, which she may very well have been, but not for this reason, right? <laughs> right, right. So, of course, the cops want to corroborate everything with a girlfriend. She confirmed that David and Peggy were planning on selling the farm and then moving to New York. Now, isn't this convenient since that's where the girlfriend lives? The girlfriend added that after Peggy's death, that David all of a sudden started 
stopped complaining about their financial problems. And she also shared with investigators, this is the girlfriend, that she was suspicious of Peggy's death and that Mm -hmm. um, while she was talking to David about it, this is the girlfriend, he supposedly made some kind of remark about, he said to her, the next thing you're going to say is that I killed my wife. Hmm. And that's a quote that the I killed my wife that detectives really keyed in on. Now, is is that something that has a lot of weight, do you think, in a case like this? Or it's just, you know, one could say it's just a phrase that someone would use. Sure, that's what the defense will say. But I, I have to give credit to this girlfriend because how often do we see this happen where someone kills their spouse to be with the new person, the new girlfriend, and the new girlfriend just goes right along with it. And, and you're sitting there going, um, excuse me, look at what he just happened to his spouse. I mean, doesn't this look at all suspicious to you? Instead, it seems like the, the girlfriend gets caught up in, you know, the romance, whatever. But this girlfriend here, she was going in that with open eyes and said, wait a minute, something here doesn't sound right, doesn't smell right. She noticed that all of a sudden his financial problems were gone. So I give her kudos for, you know, keeping her eyes open and being objective about that. And and she saw it. She could tell. And do you think that it's also possible that, you know, they may have hooked up while he was in New York and he may have been in love with her and may have been obsessing about her and he may have been thinking they have a future in a relationship. And from her perspective, it could have been a totally different experience. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we see that all the time, you know, and regardless of what she was thinking at that point, I mean, by this point. She's she's smart enough. She's objective enough to say mm, there's something going on here. I, d- I don't like the way this is going. Right. So the sheriff's department, they file a warrant and they're seeking the emails, photos, the search history, any online data um, having to do with David because they want to know, you know, what's going on now. Is that a typical thing? Obviously, right. You want to see what was going on in that person's life and in the victim's life at the time. Yes. And now, you know, thanks to we don't just have phone records of phone numbers we call. We have text. We have emails. You can read, you know, everything the person's thinking, doing, planning, talking about. It's so helpful. It's like, you know, being able to pull everybody's personal diary for what's going on in their lives by going through these records. So she died. Peggy died in June. And then in October of 2018, just a few months later, David Pettis was arrested and charged with murdering his wife. It's possible, though, that prosecutors may have jumped the gun because soon after that, the charges were dropped. Prosecutors said that they were waiting on more evidence from a third party. I'm guessing it could have um, been some of these emails or something else or phone records because they didn't say what they were waiting on. They didn't make that clear. Um, but they said that it was going to take time to gather that evidence, which may have violated Pettis's right to a speedy trial. So they went ahead. They dropped the charges, but they did say at the time that they were prepared and they were likely going to refile. Do you find that a problem in the prosecution's case? No, that's a smart strategy. So, you know, the time is you're on the clock once you file the charges. There's all of these deadlines you have to meet. And the defendant has certain rights to a speedy trial. And so you have to meet those deadlines. Otherwise, you know, the case can get dismissed just on procedural grounds, which you do not want to have happen. So if there was some reason why they could not get those records any faster, and sometimes when you're working with phone companies and other things like that, where they're going to have to dig out these records, some 
sometimes it takes longer than you have um, in your time frame. The smart thing was to dismiss the case, you know, and then start over again. So they didn't run into it. They could, could have said, oh, well, hopefully we'll have them in time for trial. But if the defendant wasn't waiving time and pushed his, you know, deadline and said, we have to go to trial by now, and they got to trial and heaven forbid, they didn't have those records that they really wanted, they wouldn't have had that evidence to present in trial. They would have lost out on that. So they were being um, safe here. It was, it was a smart move to do. I kind of feel, though, Lonnie, that it would have been a smarter move for them not to jump the gun and to have gotten all their ducks in a row and then filed it properly. I'm trying to figure out what was what was the hurry. Well, that's a, that's another way they could have done. Absolutely. And that's another great strategy. I We don't know what happened during that second interview because he was there in the station, right, and mm-hmm. giving a second interview. And at the end of that, they they arrested him and, you know, took him into custody. Um, I don't know if something triggered there where they were afraid, like, maybe he was going to take off or whatever it was that they did that. Uh, but that that's definitely another way to do it. And, um, you know, during that period of time from the time that she died until October, they might have been building the case then. They might have felt like they had enough evidence. Law enforcement did. But by the time once he was arrested and it goes to the DA's office, the DA's office goes through it and says, we need a little more to get this to trial. We need those records. And so it might have just been a difference where the DA said, mm, no, we don't quite have enough evidence. So we're going to we're going to let him go and then we'll rearrest him. Well, once the charges were dropped, obviously David Pettis was feeling a lot better about things. So he agreed to this exclusive interview with a local television station, KHQ, and he told the station that he would never hurt his wife and that he was not in love with another woman, that she was just a friend from high school, that he had reconnected with her. Now, the interview was done at their home, and he took the reporter and the cameras on a tour of the property. They went around, and and he, he pointed out all the places that reminded him of his dear wife. And then he said in this interview, if I could take her place, I would. If I could go with her, I would. He also said, I did not murder my wife. My wife was my family my whole life. Now, investigators say don't buy it. They say that David is actually a calculated killer and not the sweet husband. What do you think about him going and doing this interview? I guess from his perspective, he's trying to set the record straight if he indeed is innocent. Well, and it also allows him to put out those statements to the potential jury pool, right? So the people that are going to watch that on the local news are the people that are going to be pulled in to be on his jury. Now he can get that out there and say that, say his piece and and present himself the way he wants to as this loving spouse who misses his wife without having to actually take the stand in the trial and be cross-examined under oath. So, you know, as far as it's more of a PR move for him. Um, And it's as long as he doesn't get caught in anything, you know, that's something that a lot of, you know, defendants would love to do is to be able to get up in front of the jury and say, I'm innocent you know, I'm a good guy. This is what you should see me as, but not have to be cross-examined. That's essentially what he did there. Well, he felt that there was such a cloud of suspicion over him, of course, in this small community. He decided he was going to move out and he moved to Oklahoma to get away from all the publicity. And while he's there, he finally gets recharged, re-arrested. In spring of 2019, David Pettis is once again charged with murdering his wife. He has pleaded not guilty and he maintains his innocence. He did have to travel back to the state of Washington to stand trial. Um, And here is something very interesting that I think is a peak 
into what is going on with the family that David's son, right? This is the son that went to the police and said, you know what? I'm pretty suspicious about dad. The, that the son asked the judge to make sure that his father stopped contacting him. He asked the judge to keep the defendant away from him. So that, to me, is very telling about what is going on behind the scenes and what the family members really believe happened. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it sounds like he wants to have nothing to do with his father at this point, and he wants to make sure that the judge keeps his father away. If his father tries to, you know, build that relationship or keep a relationship with him going, the son does not want it. We also looked into his background, into David Pettis's background, and there's a little bit of a criminal history, and then there's something that really pops off the page. So, first of all, David had three previous misdemeanors in the state of New York in and around 1994, which include trespassing and petty larceny. Now, again, I, I realize these prior convictions or charges are not necessarily going to be brought into the case. But nonetheless, it's always interesting to try and understand the person. Um, David owned a transportation business called Pettis Transport, and he also served in the military from 1979 to 1981. But this is what jumped off the page for me. David made 14 insurance policy claims from 1996 to 2018, and four of them were determined to be arson. What do you think of that, Lonnie? Yeah, that's, that is a big red flag, as you say. Um, you know, th this is an interesting guy. I agree. The first two, you know, they're misdemeanors. They're years ago. They, they really could be anything. But this shows a pattern here. 14 different claims. That's a lot. That's somebody who's really trying to use the system. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it kind of will, you know, come up with concoct these schemes and these scams to try and, you know, um, essentially get money um, from the system, even to the point of doing something extreme and doing this, you know, to his wife, the way it's alleged just looks like, you know, one more step in that doing something to get money, something extreme. I mean, obviously nothing worse than killing someone, killing your loved one. Um but it, it is kind of a pattern there, right, of, of trying to sort of scam the system to get that money. It's very suspicious. Either either this guy has a history of making false claims on insurance policies to collect or, you know, calamity follows this man everywhere he goes. And I'm guessing the statistics are on the side of scamming the system. Yeah, that's a lot of coincidences there. Yeah. All right. Well, this uh, trial has been postponed until August, so we are all going to have to wait to see what other information comes out and what happens there. And, of course, True Crime Daily will be following it. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting just to point out here for a minute about how the coronavirus is affecting the justice system here, mm -hmm. um, you know, because there's so many different arenas that are being affected. And in the justice system, both civil and criminal, um, it's really changing things in an unprecedented way because um, courts across the country are shutting down um, or trying to uh, restrict how many people come in, especially with jury trials. Like this one was a, a jury trial. You have all the jurors coming in, you have the bailiff, you have the judge, you have witnesses who are flying in, you have interpreters, you have attorneys, you you know have, you have family members that are involved. That's a lot of people all in an enclosed space. And so 
Um, a lot of courts are deciding that they're not going to have jury trials. They're trying to put them off or suspend them for at least 30 days. So civil trials, that isn't that big of a deal because you're just talking about money. It's an inconvenience. But with criminal trials, if defendants are in custody, you know, that raises a lot of issues. Um, and once again, those time issues that we're talking about. And so um, courts are really trying to figure out what they can do. Some of them, some judges are are trying to do more bail hearings and let as many people as possible out of prison that they feel they safely can do, not keep them in on bail just to keep the prisons from being overcrowded and having outbreaks of the virus there. So um, even the United States Supreme Court um, has announced that they're postponing upcoming oral arguments for the first time in more than a hundred years. The last time it did so was in 1918 in response to the Spanish flu epidemic. So once more, it's another impact that people are having to figure out how we're going to handle it. And it affected this case. It affected the Robert Durst case, the, the Robert Durst case, which is set for trial. And if you watch the documentary, The Jinx, you know all about that one. That's supposed to take five months to try. And it was set to go. And they've postponed that one now because um, because of the coronavirus. So a lot of cases are being postponed and the, and the criminal justice system and the civil system are all being affected. Well, you know, I think we can all live with that as long as we know that no one is going to get away with murder. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. You know, and, and then, but it's interesting because there's some things that just can't be postponed, like, you know, juvenile detention hearings, um, you know, requests for restraining orders from domestic violence cases, um, attempts to remove, uh, remove abused children from their homes. I mean, there's some of these things that just have to be done. Um, and so courts will try to accommodate that. But a case by case, you know, essentially decisions going on. Amazing. So. Such scary times. All right. So our second case is really bizarre. This is about some cryptic letters from an anonymous sender. And is it possible that this could help police find a little girl who's been missing for more than five months? What do you think, Lonnie? You know, this is a really strange case, Anna. It's been over five months. So I'm sure the mother of this little girl is hoping that there's something out there that can help law enforcement find her. But this case is um, from New Jersey. Um, and it's about a young little five-year-old girl named Dulce Alaves. Her mother is named Noema Alaves Perez. She's 19 years old. And on September 16th of 2019, she took her two children, Dulce, who's five, and uh, Dulce's younger brother, Manuel, who is three, to a park to play. And while they were playing, uh, Noema and her younger sister sat in a parked car. They were doing homework and doing some other things. And after a while, they noticed that they couldn't see Dulce and Manuel anymore. So either they went out to find them or Manuel came to uh, to her to his mother. But either way, she realized that they didn't know where Dulce was. And Manuel showed her where she he last saw Dulce and he was upset. And so apparently Noema immediately called 911 because other people there at the park were saying somebody must have taken her, um, called 911. They started to look for her. By the next day, an Amber Alert was um, issued for Dulce. Um, it said that they believed she'd been taken by a light-skinned, possibly Hispanic male, roughly five foot six inches tall, with acne on his face, no facial hair, he was believed to be wearing orange sneakers, red pants, and a black shirt. And an eyewitness told police that they saw him leading Dulce to a red van with tinted windows and a sliding door on the passenger side. 
and that Dulce was placed in the back seat by the man who drove away with her around 4.20 p.m. the day before, September 16th. Now, there were some reports that this witness was actually a, a child, so you know we're not sure of the accuracy of all the details, but that did go out as an Amber Alert. Nothing came of it. Um, as of September 19th, there was a combined reward for $20,000 for anyone who had information. Um, by, 20, by September 24th, the FBI became involved and put Dulce on its most um, wanted missing persons list. There were a lot of searches going on by law enforcement. There were helicopters. There were volunteer searches. There were flyers going out. The community really came together to search for this little girl. On October 9th, 2019, the reward grew to $52,000. Clearly, a lot of people involved wanting to help and looking for her, wanting information. By October 15th, the police released a sketch of a possible witness, they said. The information that they um, released about this possible witness was that this person was in the park with one or two children under the age of five around the time that Dulce went missing. He's described as a Hispanic, about five feet, seven inches tall, with a slender build, about 30 to 35 years old. He was wearing a white T-shirt, blue jeans, and a white baseball-style cap. Um, And so they put this composite out there. They said this was just a possible witness, not a possible suspect. Um, Still, nothing. And... um, it just seems like they'd be getting some some leads that would be leading somewhere at this point, don't you think, Anna? I would think so, Lonnie, because let's face it, there were plenty of people at the park at the time. There were parents and kids. And uh, uh, while I am a firm believer that children generally don't lie about these things, they generally are very good at telling what it is they saw. They're also very young and they can make a lot of errors. So I realize you have young witnesses here, but then you have parents, you know, that the parents, some of the parents said that they saw that Dulce was running around near some storage buildings that were near the playground and and that they saw two men in that area. So maybe that's why they additionally believed that uh, Dulce may have been abducted. But what I find very weird is if you have Several descriptions. Then you have this this sketch, this image of a potential witness. Why have there not been any more, let's say, not just sightings, but more credible tips, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Usually, right. you know, you, you can track cars, you can track people. There are um, surveillance cameras at convenience stores. In fact, there is some uh, video of Dulce and her mom and family because they had stopped to get ice cream before they went to the park. So it's almost as if she just vanished from that that park. I mean, it is possible, you know, that she was abducted. What What is your feeling here on this one, Lonnie? Yeah, so apparently they said there was no video from the park itself, no cameras in the park area, but around, you know, they did try and get um, any video they could from businesses around the area, residences, whatever. And once again, the police have not put out that they've seen anything on that video that matches any of these descriptions. So it, it seems very strange Um as to, you know, a little girl just just not disappear into thin air, right? We know that. Yep. So so how did she, if she was abducted, if she was taken away, how did that happen? But we know she was there because not only does the mother say that, but we have these other parents, right, right. that mm-hmm. observed her there. So we know that it's not like 
the mother's making something up. I mean, there, there are people who cite her there, see her there at the park. So it's, it's just that it's a very small window of time where something happened. Right. So I'll oh, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say that um, generally as uh, a law enforcement expert like you are, do you find in these cases that it is generally more rare to have a stranger abduction than it is to have a child either hurt or disappear at the hands of someone they know? Yes, yes. So uh, let me give you just some stats real quick. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children um, last year assisted law enforcement in more than 25,000 missing children cases just in one year. Mm -hmm. 92% of those were endangered runaways. Okay, that's clearly not, she's five years old. I don't think she's running away. 4% were family abductions and less than 1% were non-family abductions. So that would be like the stranger. But they estimate that there were 30 to 40 stranger abduction cases a year nationwide. So they do happen. I actually thought 30 to 40. When I read that stat, 30 to 40 every year, that was actually a little more than I assumed for stranger abductions. I mean, these are, we're talking about, you know, somebody who who could be stalking her, who could be watching for an opportunity, who's, you know, fantasizing about this, who's planning this. Um, you know, who who goes to that park, who looks like, you know, somebody who's familiar with the park. It could be, you know, um, somebody that people are used to seeing there and just, you know, kind of in plain sight, hidden in plain sight. Um, it could be, you know, a sexual offender who's in the area and, and you know, uses that as a stalking ground to to target victims. So it does happen. It's rare, but it does happen. So this case has received a ton of national attention. The Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which you just referenced with the statistics, mailed out millions of flyers with Dulce's face on it. And they had her picture and the question, have you seen me? It's like, you know, the new version of the milk carton, if you will. And then uh, the mother, Dulce's mother, went on Dr. Phil. And that is yeah. a huge national show. So I, I, you know, you would think, again, we would be getting more tips, more sightings. Right. Now, it's interesting. When she went on Dr. Phil, that was in December of 2019. And, you know, Dr. Phil essentially had her, the mother, Noema, talk about what happened um, and then sort of probes the mother for, um, you know, what might have happened here, what she thinks might have happened. And then apparently um, Dr. Phil paused while he was interviewing her and said, you know, and this is a quote, you're the mother. You seem very relaxed about the whole thing. I've talked to a lot of mothers of abducted children and you're the most calm I've ever talked to. And she responded. She said, you know, I don't know why I don't cry in front of people just when I'm by myself. I don't even cry in front of my parents. Um, You know, it always makes me a little bit nervous when people try to read into that because we all respond differently, um, you know, with our emotions and stuff. But they also had Noema's friend. They call her a friend. Her name's Jackie Rodriguez, who um, who said she became close to Noema after organizing the first candlelight vigil for Dulce. So I'm not sure how long they've actually known each other um, other than a few months. But she also made some, you know, conclusions about her as well. And she said that Noema seems calm, that she, quote, knows that Dulce is okay, you know, not based on anything. I mean, that's that's pure speculation. But the conclusion, I think, of the show is that both Jackie and Dr. Phil said they didn't believe that Noema had done anything evil to her daughter. They did not believe she was involved in the disappearance. 
but that she may know more about what took place and what she's telling, which to me is saying that, you know, that would lead to some type of family or relative or someone they knew being involved in the abduction as opposed to a stranger abduction. What do you think? Well, um, okay. I agree with you. It's very hard to read people because everyone reacts differently. And I'm wondering if age is playing a role in all of this because Uh, the mother's 19. She gave birth to Dulce when she was 14 years old, which means when she was 13, she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. So I don't know the circumstances around that, but everything about that is wrong and illegal. And... I agree with you 100%. I think that's a really important factor to consider. I mean, for the situation, we don't know the situation, just her own emotional development, despite whatever, how traumatic that situation would be for a child to have a child. Um, it's. It, I believe that the situation now, and I think it was at the time, is that Noema Lee lives in one place very close to her mother or her parents and that Dulce and Manuel lived with her parents. So, you know, because she's still only 19 um, at this point. So, you know, I, I don't think we can necessarily judge her or even, you know, speculate, uh, speculate about her uh, without taking all of that into consideration. That's a very important context to determine you know, what is a natural reaction for someone in that situation? I don't I don't think you can really uh, determine that. Well, certainly, you know, if you're 13 years old and you're pregnant and then what happens to your life after that, none of it can be average or normal. So if mm-hmm. so, if you take that as as a starting point, then it may make sense that she, you know, nothing that she's doing seems normal to the rest of us because this whole situation is very odd. And inappropriate, you know, and I'm not trying to judge her, but that's just reality. Right. No, as you pointed out, when she if she got pregnant at 13, that is a crime. Right. That that right there. Something happened to her that was wrong. Uh, She went through that trauma. Then she's, you know, has a child that she's trying to raise uh, at some level. Then she has another child, um, you know, and then she's going through this. And then she got a lot of backlash, apparently, from people obviously judging her saying, how could you, you know, lose your child at a park? Why weren't you watching her more closely? So I would think that anyone going on a national uh, TV show at that point being interviewed um, would be very nervous and very, you know, reserved and holding back. So um, probably kind of almost comatose or in shock trying to go through that experience, doing it because you want that story to get out there. You want people to help and know what's going on. But on the other hand, just being so afraid of what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I did listen to the 911 call, and she definitely did sound, you know, frantic and was crying. And the reaction appeared to be appropriate. But as you know very well, 911 calls are are not always what they seem. But it did right. sound uh, appropriate, and there was an appropriate panic in her voice. And as a mom, you know that there is there is no worse feeling on this planet that when your child disappears in a public place for even five seconds, like mm-hmm. your heart oh. drops to the floor and oh, you yeah. are in a panic, even though they could literally be behind you. Right, right. Absolutely. The adrenaline's going, and I can't imagine. I, I mean, I think we've all, you know, all parents have had that momentary 
you know, at least once um, yep. as you're raising your children. But I can't imagine it to then go on for months and months and, and, and just not know what happened. So now in the middle of all this, the child is still missing and there is the most bizarre, creepy twist to this case. These anonymous letters start appearing in Ohio and these letters make references to the little girl and uh, three letters were sent in Ohio, and one was apparently sent to Jackie Rodriguez, the family spokesperson slash new best friend. Um, mm-hmm. These letters, uh, authorities revealed this week that they're investigating these letters um, because of the content and how bizarre they are. So one letter was sent to a local library in Ohio. Another one was sent to an ice cream store, which is interesting because, remember, the family went to an ice cream store, ice cream shop before they went to the park. And then the third was sent to a race course. And then Mm -hmm. the letter that was sent to the race course was addressed to the manager. And inside was an index card, and it had scribbling on it. And um, the scribbling suggested that the police should, should search a nearby wooded area that was by a truck stop. The letter said, and I'm just quoting because of the scribblings. So it said, 76 truck stop, dead end street, entrance woods, please look. You know what I mean? It was not even written like in a sentence. So right. so police and canines searched the area. They didn't find anything. So then an owner of an ice cream shop gets a letter in the mailbox, and she took it straight to the police. This letter mentioned Dulce by name, but didn't necessarily say to um, search an area or even suggest that she was there. Then the third letter in Ohio was sent to a library, and the handwriting of all three letters in Ohio appears to match according to the police. So then the fourth letter, Lonnie, was sent to the spokesperson for for Dulce's family, and that letter was sent to her New Jersey home, and it was postmarked from Cleveland, Ohio. So mm-hmm. what do you make yeah. of that? Well, and that one wasn't even a, really a letter, she said. It was like like little sheets of paper that had, you know, right. writing on it. It wasn't really specific. There's some several words, including Alaska, Mexico, border, 1776, Civil War, New England town, kids' homes, orphanages. And she said that it was interesting. She thought that it had something to do with maybe um, psychic, a psychic taking scribbling notes as they, you know, because she said she's had a number of psychics reach out to her as the family spokesperson. um, And that's the kind of information they would give. It's all just kind of like disjointed thoughts or, you know, little scenes that they see in their head or whatever it is. Um, and so she thought that that's what those those little notes might be. But these are these are very bizarre. I mean, what's the connection to Ohio and to those businesses? And, and yet nothing specific is really being said, except for the first one where it said, you know, search this area, which came up, you know, so far to have nothing. But the police did say they were going to try again. Right now it's, it's snow covered. Um, so it kind of hampered their search. But they said they would try to search the area again. Um, you know, the police are trying anything here. Um, apparently, there is some other information that came in from psychics and they actually, you know, people have followed up on those leads and um, searched those areas and, and nothing's come of it. But th- these letters, other than the fact that the three in Ohio seem to have been written in the same handwriting, I wouldn't even know if they were connected. Right. Because they're just so random and so different. 
Well, do you think that this is a hoax? You know how when there's a big, high-profile case out there, you know, these crazies come out of the woodwork and they, you know, they lead police on wild goose chases. They make up information. They claim to have uh, information. So do you think that that's what this could be? Or do you think this is just, you know, I, I, that's the other thing. You, I guess you can't really know. You, you don't know. I mean, it could be somebody who's just trying to get attention, right? There's somebody who's trying to lead the police on wild goose chases. Um, somebody who is actually trying to misdirect the police to spend their time and resources going down the wrong road and then they get frustrated and, you know, kind of tired of it. And so then if there is a, a, a legitimate lead out there, they may not follow up as, you know, quickly on it. I don't know. It, it, they're very, very sure. And after all this time, too. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, because we haven't heard anything new on the investigation for months. And then all of a sudden, here come these letters kind of stirring it all up again. So. I don't know, but I do think, as Jackie Rodriguez pointed out, she said, look, if these are just people, you know, hoaxes, I would want the police to follow up on them and, you know, do something, you know, prosecute them, some deterrent, because it really is a waste of time and money in taking the focus away from from what they need to be doing and using the resources for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there is a father in all of this. There's not a lot of information about him. Uh, apparently, he lives in Mexico. Um and um, apparently he didn't even know that Dulce was his daughter or was born. But we don't know details about that. I don't really want to go down that rabbit hole. But uh, I'm sure people are wondering, like, because let's not forget, she was 13 years old when she got pregnant. So right. there's another right. rabbit hole there. Uh, we want to remind everyone that Dulce is three feet, five inches tall. She has brown hair and brown eyes and that she was last seen wearing a yellow shirt with a picture of an elephant on it. And um, she had black and white pants and white shoes. So if anyone has seen her, we certainly hope that uh, we get some information soon because this it's just heartbreaking. Whatever has happened to this poor child. Yeah. And and just a couple other tips that um, experts say, you know, for residents around there, they're in in that area around the park to think about uh, anyone they know who shows sudden behavioral changes, such as leaving town unexpectedly, changing their appearance, discarding a vehicle or clothing or increased alcohol or drug use. They may display anxiety, nervousness or irritability. They may withdraw from their normal activities um, you know, just somebody that's seeming like something's going on right now or has since since um, Dulce disappeared. And um, if it was a stranger who abducted her, it could be someone who's a regular at the park, knows the area and isn't viewed as a suspicious character. So, you know, keep these tips in mind um, when you're just trying to figure this out. OK, good advice there, Lonnie, because if you do know something, that's when you start showing it. You don't think people notice, but they do. Well, we're going to move on to the area of our show that's a little bit lighter, a little less serious. It's our comments section. And in this case, police charge Speedy Gonzalez in Georgia with stolen checks. Okay, Looney Tunes fans, um, you may remember the swift-footed Mexican mouse named Speedy Gonzalez. But police announced that they have actually charged a 35-year-old Georgia man whose real name is... Speedy Gonzalez. He has been charged with forgery and theft. So Aja R. writes, oh my, with a name like Speedy, how will you ever catch him? Speedy, the check thief, turn yourself in. And Solomon R. writes, how can someone be Speedy 
and you want to catch them. We don't have a lot of comments this week. We wanted, you know, to keep this, uh, you know, a little bit simpler, if you will, because of the situation with the pandemic and um, everyone's life has been turned upside down. Um, Lonnie, thank you so much for coming on our show. Uh, Where can people find out more about you? Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter uh, and Instagram. Okay, terrific. And good luck. Your show debuts this Saturday. And since all of you will be home and you will be self-isolating and social distancing, practicing, (laughs) you can all watch Lonnie's show on the Oxygen Network. And I just want to say to everyone to please think about spreading kindness and love, not spreading germs. We need to be really compassionate to those around us. I know it's very frustrating at the supermarkets right now. You know, I will tell you yesterday I went to five markets, five markets trying to get my supplies. And I just think that we need to be courteous to one another, to be patient because everyone is trying to do their best. So if you can help someone out with a smile at a nice faraway distance, (laughs) I think it would be greatly appreciated. And like we said at the top of this podcast, we're going to keep the podcast going every week. We may change. I may be doing this from my kitchen next week. We really don't know. But we have a lot of people who work behind the scenes, and it's important to all of us that we keep this going, we keep their jobs going, and to try and keep some some sense of um, who we all are during this pandemic. So thank you all for listening. And as always, you can find our content on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, plus on YouTube, of course. And you can get updates and subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, and we will meet again next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast reminding you, don't do crime. Don't do crime.